We trust concepts way too much. We trust our thinking way too much. We trust our habits way too much. And that also includes the way we think, the way we process narratives, storylines, all these things. In today's sutta, the great discourse on the four establishments of mindfulness or four foundations of mindfulness, the Mahasatipatthana Sutta from, that comes to us from the Diganikaya, which is the collection of discourses, the long discourses of Lord Buddha, is trying to help us not to rely so much on our concepts, which is what we're trying to relinquish. Every time we take refuge, for example, we're trying to create some space between our concepts, the way we interpret the world, the way we see the world, the way we would like to see our world, in, internal world and the external world, the way we look at relationships, and even the relationships between concepts that we hold so dear. So one can understand and appreciate after looking at all these factors and many, many, many more variables as to why there should be a chaos in a person's mind. This, this disconnect that we have within ourselves. What is true, what is valuable versus what is not, what are not. So here we see a vast um, sutta because it, it establishes the foundation, not just for the four establishments of, of mindfulness, satipatthana, but also to, we see it as, as um, a tool that Lord Buddha is using to put a wedge between the living experience that always, if not all, well, yeah, often and always for most of us, most of the population of this planet, that goes unnoticed. Things, the living experience, so much that is happening, we are simply unaware. We are on the, in, the, in the passenger seat, as it were of our own living experience. So we're just there for the ride. So here in the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, we're seeing how Lord Buddha, we're gonna be seeing how Lord Buddha brings us back to the basic, basic core, the most essential part of the living experience. And sometimes it might seem so simplistic and the mind wants to go in and poke around, try to find something extremely mystical, metaphysical somewhere 
And it's not just in this teaching, of course. You see it all throughout the 84,000 teachings of Lord Buddha, as it's usually called, 84,000. But the flavor is one. Come back to what is happening. And for that, Lord Buddha gave this discourse. Um, from what uh, I understand, the discourse came about, even though there isn't uh, that much being said about the background, uh, the context, but one can understand, especially the way it ends, how Lord Buddha is trying to answer someone's question somewhere. Somebody had said something. And we're catching this discourse in almost in mid-sentence, as it were, if you can think of it like that. And there's the other factor that Lord Buddha rarely started a Dhamma sharing, Dhamma discourse, or Dhamma talk uh, without being asked. And that's why we have uh, certain uh, um, chants even that have converted themselves into chants over the course of centuries. Um, when a person approaches and asks a bhikkhu for a Dhamma talk or Dhamma discourse. So we get that tradition also from Lord Buddha himself, where something had to be instigated. And usually we have Venerable Ananda serving that instigator role, where, um, and Lord Buddha had his interesting way of um, asking a question through Ananda as to, um, what is going on, or even something um, pertinent with the Dhamma teachings themselves. Um, and uh, then Venerable Ananda would turn it around and say, this would be the right time, O Lord, this would be the right occasion for the Blessed One to elaborate, to give a teaching on this. Now, in the sutta, we're not seeing that. We don't have that. We're just jumping straight into whatever is presented as the most essential. And uh, every part of it is essential. And in uh, translating it, um, I had to really unravel. There's so much there. Um, and in the Pali texts, sometimes we see a few words and a few sentences, a short paragraph. And, and this sutta itself, when we look at it in the Pali, we see that it is segregated into small or sh small chunks of paragraphs. And if you're just trans translating in the typical scholarly way, you're going word for word, word for word, and maybe put the sentences together and try to make some um, meaning come out of it. But most of the time, people try to adhere to the structure and the number, the count of words, etc. Now, Pali is not like any typical language, even though some linguists would, would disagree. But whether it's this sutta or any sutta, it's important to understand that the most essential, you know, like essential oil, you get one oil, one tiny droplet of oil. Let's say if you get a cinnamon uh, bark essential oil, just a tiny little bit. It's so loaded with sweetness, with the fragrance of cinnamon. And it, you have to dissolve it in a larger body of oil or water in order. And it's still 
keeps its integrity. You know it's cinnamon, essential oil. Similarly, the intensity is lessened, of course. I'm trying to create, a, you know, use that as a metaphor here. However, it's a lot more than that. And that is the reason why the short paragraphs that I was using from the Pali and also using references from the currently available uh, English translations just to see where's, where's what and how they approach this paragraph. There's so much that is lost in the, to my uh, familiarity with the English language, so much is lost in the English language as it's moving from the Pali. Now the Pali itself, as I mentioned, is a very short paragraph. So one can argue that point, but it, they try to pack it as small of a package as possible to make it last throughout the centuries and reach us. And the way it reaches us is if we take those teachings and unravel them in our living experience. And that is what the Mahasatipatthana is trying to do. So when it is talking about the breath, like we've covered with the Anapanasati, they're very short sentences, but they don't necessarily have to remain. And that is one of the reasons why I try to give the reader or listeners uh, a more contextual, a 3D, a 360 degree view where you find your own living experience within that space, if that makes sense. So uh, when we are approaching the sutta, I would like to, uh, because it's a long one, and that is one of the reasons why I will uh, be dividing it into three weeks, and we will not, uh, we will keep them continuous. So we will skip, as I mentioned previously, the meditation retreats, uh, which would be every other week. So three weeks consecutive, where we cover the Mahasatipatthana in um, three parts. And I will do my very best to make sure that we cover it within that space, because it because it can easily go beyond those three weeks. So, um, um, like everything else we have seen and studied previously uh, regarding the Dhamma and the suttas, um, especially in the later suttas that came after the Mahasatipatthana, and previously also in the Sutta Nipatas, uh, the er earliest uh, book, uh, many um, confidently say, uh, of suttas, we see how there is this gradual process. Gradual process. Here we have a major sutta that is a perfect formula for that. We see how Lord Buddha starts with the body, the most basic, the most elemental, the most obvious part of the living experience. So not just the body in motion, for example, but he starts with the body in just the most basic thing that makes it alive, meaning the breath. So he starts from there. And gradually it unfolds, the teaching. 
and um, it rejoins us with the living experience, with life itself. As the sutta progresses, we see how it moves from the body and, and the form of the breath into more less obvious and easily omittable parts of it, meaning when it is in motion, when it is moving through different states, when it is um, um, experiencing certain things, and more um, um, abstract things, perhaps, if you can call it per abstract. Uh, for example, the repulsive or particula, the repulsive, um, which has to do with the body. Now, this goes deep into our reliance and attachment to the body itself. We're still using the body, but we're no longer working with something as obvious. So we have to put ourselves in the midst of a situation where we are being shocked by reality where it's intruding upon our own ideas and concepts of what this living experience within the body entails. There's death, for example, when we get into the charnel ground, uh, nine charnel ground scenarios. So that still is in the body realm. And then when we go into the feeling realm, and then, so you see it's becoming more and more refined as the practitioner is becoming more adapted, but creating this sense of um, becoming better uh, able to stay with mindfulness as it's also creating space for wisdom to occur. So, um, and finally, it, it, it reaches the climax of uh, the, the apex, rather, of uh, the uh, Four Noble Truths, uh, which is the essence of the Dhamma. And we see um, how the living experience is being unfolded throughout in this sutta to reach such, such sublime levels of insight for the practitioner, if they stick to it. But you need a formula for that. And this sutta happens to be it. Now, of course, we have the Satipatthana Sutta, which is a, a, a lot shorter uh, version of it. Uh, we don't call it Chula Satipatthana. Usually that's the formula. Maha something, Maha Sutta, whatever the name is. And we have the Chula version. Chula means the smaller, the minor, um, etc. So, uh, which comes from the Majjhimanikaya, middle-length discourses. It doesn't go into in-depth, but it still keeps the four establishment structure, the four foundational structure. But I recommend starting here because we have a more historical or formulaic, rather, a proper structure of the Satipatthana. Um, so here we are going to be seeing Lord Buddha start with the breath. So this comes from Diganikaya number 22, Long Discourses of Lord Buddha's. Um, and um, again, in English, it is the greater discourse on the four establishments of mindfulness. So let's begin. This is what I personally heard. 
At one time, the Blessed One was staying in the Kuru country, in a town by the name of Kamasadhamma. There, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus by saying, Bhikkhus? Yes, Bhante, the bhikkhus replied. The Blessed One said this, This is the path that is direct. It leads to the purification of beings, to overcome sadness and lamentation, to leave behind pain and mental anguish, and thus to end the cycles of suffering by the realization of Nibbana, all through the means of these four establishments of mindfulness. What are these four? He just gave us the formula for Nibbana in case we missed all the other formulas, in case we missed all the other suttas. His patience never runs out, his tolerance, his care, to say it in such uh, diverse multitudes of ways. But essentially we're seeing the same thing, Lord Buddha's message. There is dukkha and there is a way out of dukkha. And here in this statement, we already saw it again. There is dukkha, and there's a way out of Dukkha, briefly stated. Now, something needs to be said about the first phrase, the first sentence, as far as this is the path that is direct. In Pali, it is ekayano maggu, or maggu. And probably it's ekayo ayang, Bikkave Maggo, which means basically <clears throat> many people translate. Eka means one, by the way. Yana means uh, a path or a way, um, a conduit. <clears throat> and, excuse me. And many people taught, uh, thought that and taught it as. This is the only way, eka, one. So logically, they came to the conclusion that this must be the only way to attain Nibbana. However, there's a problem. If we studied a little bit more of the Dhamma, and we think about, we, we see suddenly the inclusion and the insistence on Lord, uh, of Lord Buddha's on using the 37 aids to awakening or enlightenment, we see that the, uh, the four establishments of, establishments of mindfulness merely hold their own place. They are merely in a set of ingredients that are necessary for awakening to happen. Just one part of the puzzle. There's also the seven factors of awakening, the bojangas. There's also the four idhipadas, the four bases of psychic power, which we've covered in the past. There's also the Noble Eightfold Path. There's also the five spiritual faculties. There's also the collection of those five turning into powers. So the five spiritual powers, etc. So when you combine these all together, along with the four satipatthanas, you get the 37 factors of um, 37 aids to awakening. The, Bodhipakkiyas. So obviously, when we look at it from that angle, it becomes very clear that Lord Buddha did never intend on using Ekayanumago as this is the only path. It is the direct path. 
This you could use also in conjunction with what I was saying earlier, as far as Pali being such an advanced, yet simple, simple looking. It's such an elegant language, but one word might be having so many different nuances to it. Given another word somewhere in the paragraph or a letter in some cases, at the way back in the tail end of the paragraph. And the other paragraphs have to also be playing a part in creating this uh, panorama of what it is that is being presented to us and why. So uh, the Satipatthanas do not stand alone. They need to rely on the other factors. Um, so I just wanted to mention that because there are still some um, translations that uh, still, uh, for some reason, they're still around where they uh, introduce, or some teachers who still introduce it as the only path to awakening. So that is incorrect. So uh, what are these four, Lord Buddha says? Here, because this is a synopsis that's coming up. Here, because a bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states, striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desire or resentment towards the world. Similarly, he is fully attentive, carefully staying with whatever feeling that is occurring, mindful of it in all its transitions, striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desire or resentment towards the world. Thoughts of desire or resentment, uh, or sometimes, you know, they're seen as uh, desire or craving for the world and pushing away something that is ugly, be considered to be ugly, related with the world, away from us. So we're caught in this a tug of war between like and dislike. So already here we see that being fully attentive and aware of whatever it is that you're establishing your mindfulness on, whether it's the body or as we saw, feelings, you need to be excluding yourself from engaging in this tug of war of like and dislike, no matter what kind of a package they are presented with. And that's where concepts come in to ruin everything by putting a label on it and saying, this I like, oh, this is Dhamma, so I have to be very in engaged in it. And that's why many people get into arguments and debates and fighting over Dhamma. It happens all the time. So it becomes an ego trip. Or we, it happens within us. When someone presents an idea that is to us seen as Adhamma or something. Ultimately, what is the quality of the mind, Lord Buddha is saying? Where is your mindfulness? That's what Lord Buddha is saying. So not engaging, not shunning the world or being pulled into the world. Just pushing yourself, pulling, secluding yourself. Yeah, secluding yourself from this tug of war, saying, no, I'm not going to be pulled into this. And that's when we are actually on our way to practice, uh, practicing the mindfulness uh, proper. Three, um, similarly, he is fully attentive, carefully staying with whatever state that is occurring in the chitta, heart. 
mindful of it in all its transitions and states, striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desire or resentment towards the world. Now, for the longest time, I used to use, uh, I used to understand and practice Satipatthana myself as when, when I came to this portion, chitta being the mind, the mind, the mind. So, but then Lord Buddha had a place for this. He had another name for mind, Mano, Mano. This again takes us back to the context. Fortunately, we've had some incredibly uh, uh, versatile teachers over the course of last, last century or so. And uh, it really helps um, to look into what other teachers, uh, arahants in this case, like Ajahn Man and Ajahn Mahabua and uh, other uh, teachers like Shwewumin Sayadaw have approached uh, this chitta. Now, I put, uh, when you have the PDFs, you see that I put the heart, capital H, within parentheses. Some people will think that chitta is found within this heart organ. That's not it. Uh, but I, I'm also trying to keep away from turning this into a metaphysical field of study or something, or no. The easiest way, way that we can think of this is the relationship between the cold intellect and the heart, the feeling, warm heart, the intuitive sense. The intuitive. So one of the terms that you've heard me use a lot, and you get that a lot from the Nikayas, is akuppa cheto vimutti. Lord Buddha doesn't say akuppa mano vimutti. <laughs> cheto, chitta, it's the same thing. So it has this feeling connotation. It has this texture to it, which keeps it warm, throbbing with life, pulsating with life, relatable, highly relatable. So it's not something that is intellectual based. So it's very experiential. It turns the whole process into something that is extremely, well, experiential, undeniably so. And this is the way I understand to have the insights take place when we're doing vipassana, for example. And because when we do vipassana, well, guess what? We're using all these four structures of the establishments of mindfulness. So that I'm giving you a, a um, the reasoning, um, uh, my reasoning behind choosing this uh, to leave the word chitta the way Lord Buddha has used it instead of translating it. So throughout the sutta's translation, which I've done, I only keep it as chitta. And sometimes it's much better. It's the same thing with um, using um, dukkha, for example, to describe suffering. Suffering is only a tiny little mediocre almost term to describe this vast, rich, um, rich with meaning uh, term that Lord Buddha used, dukkha, for example. And it's opposite, sukha, sukha, which we just loosely term as happiness. So um, if you could just use the word chitta. Now, it, you're checking the quality. I don't want to jump into it because that's probably going to come in next week, I'm hoping. <laughs> uh, so um, as the mind or heart is moving through all these transitions, 
on a daily, daily basis, moment to moment basis. So the mind or your awareness is locked on what's happening within me. So uh, we can use different terms, but for me, the easiest way is to just use whatever Lord Buddha used, which is the word chitta. Uh, by the way, uh, my late teacher, uh, Bhante Punnaji and I used to have disagreements on this. Um, <laughs> I have so much respect for Bhante. Uh, he's taught me so much. Um, but he had, uh, he was very much based on uh, the psychoanalytical school of psychology. So he was a big avid fan of, of Freud. Uh, so we would have disagreements on that as well. But um, he would look at Mano as the mind. And Chitta, he would look at it with somewhat of a <laughs> derogatory sense. In a sense, he would look at it as um, emotions. He would just, uh, sometimes he would call it mood, which I appreciated. So it's a little bit more advanced than just, you know, getting emotional type of a thing. Those elements are still found within the chitta. Um, and uh, when you are uh, looking at the writings uh, and the teachings of Ajahn Man, for example, you see how the chitta is where Nibbana happens. He uses this term. And it's the same way with the defilements, the kileshas. That's where they are. Now, again, it's not a geographical location. Please be mindful of that. Um, so this is just a point of reference, point of reference to kind of allow us not to become so distracted in thoughts and in different types of musings that happen in the mind as we are going deeper and deeper and becoming more refined in our awareness of this living experience that we're calling mindfulness. And this is number four, which um, is talking about the Dhamma Anupassana. Dhamma here is not the teachings, again, phenomena. Uh, sometimes they're called mental objects, which I find to be very delimiting. It's very constrained. It's, it's uh, a disabled or handicapped version of what the true meaning means for me. Uh, so Lord Buddha says, similarly, he is fully attentive carefully staying with whatever phenomena along with their relationships that he detects are occurring, mindful of them in all their transitions, striving ardently as he shuns any thoughts of desire or resentment towards the world. Here, phenomena um, or dhammas, it's not uppercase or capital D for uh, us, you know, in the Western world, it's small d to distinguish um, that what we're dealing with is are the various different aspects of what I've been using a lot today, living experience. Here we're going to find, uh, for example, the five hindrances. We're going to find even the seven factors of awakening. We're going to find the panchakandas, the five aggregates, etc., including the uh, four noble truths, as mentioned earlier. So these are not necessarily things that are um, touch, uh, tangible. We can't touch them necessarily, right? But we uh, definitely can experience them. But Lord Buddha does not start with this fourth as the first. 
as I was mentioning, it's a progressive change, the gradual, gradually unfolding into each other. So uh, some might say, oh, I just want to jump into the Dhammanupasana. I've had students who have not spent enough time on the breath, for example, and, or the body. And they just want to go, and this comes from their own personality, most of often. Uh, they're very alpha type, and they just want, you know, A type. They just want to go straight to the gold, to, to the finish line. For that, I encourage you to look at a tree and how a tree is. A tree is very rough and gross in the sense, uh, in its structure, in its texture, in its solidity, in its firmness, uh, when we're talking about its trunk. Its trunk. It's protruding out of the soil, away from the roots, and it's so strong, but it's sturdy, and it's keeping the whole tree there, with the help of the roots, of course, but the tree trunk is very observable. But as you go higher and higher, you get to the branches and then finally the other branches, the twigs, or not the twigs, but the, the more ex far, uh, the extremities of the, of the tree branches, you get to see them becoming a little bit more elastic, more suspending, and more softer, and not so rigid. If they were that rigid, they would just be broken off. And then finally you get to the leaves, and then you can, if you're lucky, it's a fruit tree, you actually get to the flowers that will turn into the fruits or the fruits themselves. So you can look at it like that as well, if the images help here, to appreciate that the Satipatthana grow from one to the other. Now, eventually, the person might be advanced, uh, it might even be an arahant, one would say, and still be using the, the breath, like the case was with Webu Sayadaw. He was an arahant. And uh, his, insistent, his insistence was, forget about everything else. Remember, don't leave your train. Do not leave the train. That was his saying. And he would just be using the breath. He says, Every, forget about Abhidhamma. Don't talk to me about Abhidhamma, he would say. Don't, no, we don't have to go into Dhammanapasana, just come back to the breath. Now, in the case of Shoewumin uh, Sayadaw, he was uh, always, um, uh, he was also an Arahant. He would look at the Chittanapasana, so he had more of a connection with that. So once you get to that level, it's your choice which one to, to be using. So you can look at it as, in that fashion as well. So here we are about, uh, about to jump in to the Mahasati Patana Sutta. So the first section, obviously, as we saw, it is the observation of the body. And observation, observation of the body is divided into several sections. And the first of which is the most well-known. And that has to do with the breath. Again, um, if you were with us when we did the Anapanasati, you will see many of these elements there um, that we're going to be covering. Uh, but not all. Not all. Okay, so meditation on the in and out breathing. 
the anapanasati portion of the body, kayanupasana. And how bhikkhus is a bhikkhu fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions? Here bhikkhus, the bhikkhu, by going to the forest or sitting at the root of a tree or in an empty kuti hut, folds his legs together, keeping his body straight and brings his awareness inwards and rests it upon the breath flowing in and out. Thus, he mindfully breathes in and mindfully breathes out. While breathing in, he knows I breathe in long. Breathing out long, he knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows I breathe in short. Breathing out short, he knows I breathe out short. By training himself with the breath further, here, if you remember from my commentary to the Anapanasati, the first two lines is, uh, he knows, uh, or, or he's, when he's breathing in. Um, here on the, in the third and fourth lines of the Anapana portion, you see when he's training, he says, when he's training. So this means it's a little bit more uh, engaged than just knowing. So the person is investing more in what is going on. And as you see, by training himself with the breath further, he pays attention to the whole breath from beginning to end as he experiences it flowing inward. Training further, he pays attention to the whole breath. Sometimes they're calling, uh, they call it the, the, full, um, the whole body of the breath. And some people were using it, the whole body. They were using it as an interpretation of feeling the whole body instead of looking at the whole body of the breath, which I find it to be problematic and not true to the meaning here. Uh, from beginning to end, as he experiences it flowing outward. Um, some students have expressed the, uh, that they really liked the image that I used when we were covering the anapanasati of an actual, our, our own bodies. So when I uh, gave the example, from what I recall, <coughs> excuse me, the body, when we say my body or someone's body, uh, we, let's say we start from the head down, but we don't stop at the knees or the ankles, this thing called body, to denote it, to define it. Nor do we say from the feet, the bottom of the feet, all the way up to the neck, that's the body. No, we include the whole thing. So similarly, when we are watching and observing the breath here in this stage of the Kayanapasana, the breath, we are there training ourselves from the very beginning point where the inhalation takes place. And, but we don't just say, okay, that's it. I just, you know, I just spot it and I'm going to note it. I'm going to, yes, that's the breath. No, 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 no. We stay with it. We hold the hand of the breath, if you will. We stay with the breath as we are carefully observing what happens. And think of this as the midpoint. And then we're still with it. And it's vanishing. And there we go. We, don't, we didn't let go yet. We're still with it. And then finally, we see the exhale finish. There might be a moment, a gap between the next inhale to come in. But what you just did, given this example, you stayed with the breath, the whole body of the breath. And that requires training. So we're no longer just, just cognizant of 
oh yeah, that's, that's a short breath I just had, or that's a long breath I'm having, ooh. This is a little bit more advanced. So even though we're just within the first section of the breath. Um, <coughs> excuse me. A couple of things that I want to mention about the words that I um, uh, use here in the beginning where it says, uh, and how, because is a bhikkhu fully attentive. So when we talk about attentiveness, what are we referring? Can we use, um, can we further define it? So with attentiveness, we are being fully, fully alert to what is happening now, fully alert to it in the present moment. Basically, we are paying full attention to it, whatever it is. In this case, it's the breath. Later on, we will see whatever we decide to place our attention on. That becomes the object of what we're saying, becoming attentive to. Now, when we're saying mindfulness, we're carrying that attentiveness through time, further into time. Temporally, it's being carried over. It's like the holding the hand, as I, as I was trying to say, remaining with that object, whatever it is. So, when, so however changes that happen, you're going to have hindrances come up. But the only way you know that the hindrances are coming and going is if you are mindful. So mindfulness is also the thing that is going to bring you wisdom. Because if it's just, you know, if we're just top heavy with attentiveness, that can be fixation. And that is where some students come back and say, well, I'm so focused on it, or um, I'm, I'm having attention headaches. Um, and, and there's no wisdom occurring because they're just, um, they've become so one-pointed in just looking at this. And this is where it can, if the person wants it or if their teacher is helping them, if they have a teacher, to go into the absorption aspect of the jhanas. So there's a fixation in a sense. Uh, one of my earliest teachers, uh, he was telling me when he had, um, a, a young monk had come to the monastery, it, it was not one of his students, and uh, there were other teachers there, and um, this person was walking through the kitchen, um, this younger person, and um, he had been practicing the earth kasina, the patavi kasina. Patavi is the earth kasina. If you ever heard of the discs that people use uh, to uh, focus, it's a nimitta, which is a sign. And they just say the same word. They look at the disc, which is earthen. It's, it's made with clay, something with earth color, reddish. And um, that person, as they sit for hours and hours, for days, for weeks, sometimes months, if not years, they become fixated on it. So this person had been doing that apparently and saying, patavi, 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 patavi. So he's walking through the kitchen and my teacher sees him and this person is just walking around totally not acknowledging everybody else around him, including this teachers, Mahatayaras. And he was just completely absorbed in patavi, uh, in earth. And uh, there's no mindfulness there, basically. 
that's where that's that's the primary reason why insights do not occur uh, for such a practitioner uh, at that time in their practice. So uh, mindfulness is key here because we're taking attentiveness, but we are carrying it through in time. Uh, through a, it's a process, whatever is taking place. So it has an aliveness to it. A living texture is attached to it, thanks to our mindfulness. Whether we're observing the Vedana, the feelings, uh, whether it's chitta, the states of the chitta, or, <coughs> excuse me, the phenomena, the phenomena that keep coming up and disappearing. Uh, just to distinguish those two, because sometimes people might think that it's the same thing, but they're not. Attentiveness and mindfulness. Uh, continuing with the sutta, further, while breathing in, he settles down the breath's movement within the physical body. While breathing out too, he settles down the breath's movement within the physical body. Now, I've noticed many uh, translators use... Um, uh, mental formations or physical formations in this case, formations nevertheless, or preparations or fermentations, uh, etc. For me, they are so otherworldly terms that I, I have had uh, much difficulty with uh, to, trying to understand, let alone practice these principles. The word is kaya sankara, means Sankara happens to be one of those very, very tough to translate and define properly terms from the Pali. So here um, we use it as, um, I, I've used it as habitual tendencies, generative causes. Um, um, it's it's the, the, the impetus with which a person is in motion. In this case, it's the body. And specifically, when we look at, uh, for example, the Mahavedalla or Chulavedalla in other suttas, uh, we see um, the importance being laid on the Kaya Sankara uh, and, and all throughout these suttas and many others, wherever it's mentioned, it is referring to the breath. The breathing process taking place within the body and um, this is what uh, um, the late uh, Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw uh, would use the belly breathing, the motion of, uh, of the breath that is occurring within and around the solar plexus, in and out, in and out. So it can allow you to be both attentive and mindful of the sankharas as they're taking place. Because many people would have a hard time at one point or another to keep track of the breath going in and out of the nostrils. Now, of course, the person is breathing through the nostrils. But sometimes it becomes so faint. So to uh, ameliorate that situation, uh, Mahasi Sayadaw chose to use, um, it's like hitting two targets with one arrow, uh, where he would still maintain observation of the breath, but at the same time addressing the Kaya Sankara portion of the instruction, where the person is able to stay with the body 
And this also is going to be tied into the four elements, which we'll see a little bit later. Uh, and the motion has to do with air. You can think of it as the air and the pressure. And we're also obviously working with the patavi, the earth element, which is the solidity of the body and the fluidity, uh, which is the water elements and the heat generated, which is the fire element. So the person would also be using that. So it's three targets now with one arrow. Um, so, um, but I wanted to say those words in regards to the sankara. When I use the word uh, breath's movement within the body, I'm trying to keep it within the confines of the body, nothing else. And that's what the kaya sankaras are, having specifically to do with the breath and the breath's influence on the body itself. So the person here is relaxing, relaxing those motions, those movements. They're not absorbed in them. Slowly, slowly, as the person is watching the inhalation, using Mahasi Sayadaw's example of the belly. And if you've ever seen a child, an infant, a newborn baby lying down in their crib and you look and you observe, it's almost hypnotic when you observe their breath go in or if you have a pet and the pet is sleeping. I used to watch my, uh, my puppy years ago when I was a child as you know he would just sleep and I would just see the pulse might be beating and slowly slowly the breath would be calming down and it's almost like a trance so if you pay attention to it but obviously this has nothing to do with going into trance you know this is satipatthana all about wisdom here anyhow uh, here's an interesting image which um, um, is lovely to to um, see lord buddha presenting for us to understand just as a master clay potter or his apprentice while spinning his pottery wheel slower by making long turns knows full well that his spinning is long and slow and similarly while spinning his pottery wheel fast by making short turns he knows full well that his spinning is short and fast now uh, sometimes they would use a piece of stick uh, a long stick and these would be like uh, stone wheels upon other you know more sturdy solid uh, piece of rock and sometimes to crush grain sometimes uh, to uh, really make the clay that is going to be used for pottery to make it to ground to such fine levels they would place it in there and uh, you, you still see it sometimes in some places of Nepal and in India, um, where they don't have the normal electrical wheel that you would see in uh, pottery making. So they would use the stick, they, it would have a groove somewhere on the, on the wheel itself. And initially it's hard, but then eventually. So they control the spinning rate and it will have a different effect. Um, as to how uh, on the their objective however they want to spin it it will have an impact on that so that is a reference that i understand is being made here by lord buddha in connection to the breath in the same manner the bhikkhu while breathing in long he knows i breathe in long breathing out long he knows i breathe out long breathing in short he knows i breathe in short breathing out short he knows i breathe out short so this is a rep repetition of what we just 
went over. By training himself with the breath further, he pays attention to the whole breath from beginning to end as he experiences it flowing inward. Training further, he pays attention to the whole breath from beginning to end as he experiences the in, uh, it flowing outward. Further, while breathing in, he settles down the breath's movement within the physical body. While breathing out too, he settles down the breath's movement within the physical body. Thus, the bhikkhu lives while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states, whether they are taking place internally, externally, or both internally and externally. So just observing the breath coming in would be one way of looking at this taking place internally. Seeing the body's motion, let's say, uh, how, let's say, your chest is pushing against your clothing would be seeing how it is having an impact externally on the external objects or the atmosphere, environment. And if you were to use the Mahasi uh, method, as I mentioned earlier, of the belly breathing, and you're attentive of the breath going in and also observant of the motion, the pressing away of your belly muscles and fat, away from you, that would be seeing it both internally and externally. Now, this would be one way of understanding that statement that Lord Buddha just gave us. Further, he is fully attentive to the beginning point of how the body is experienced, mindful of the point of origin of its transitions and states and how they arise while they are being felt through and with the body. So if you recall that... Um, well, the gestures I was trying to make here on a video where there's a point of origin of the breath, the beginning point, rather. And so that would be the beginning point. And next, we're going to see the vanishing point. Um, I use that vanishing point because it's, it's a term I, I studied when I was learning perspective in Fine Arts uh, Academy. So it's, I, I love that term, vanishing point. It, 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 it's a point of dissolution. It, it's an ending. Um, so further, he is fully attentive to the vanishing point of how the body is experienced, mindful of the point of passing away of its transitions and states and how they end while they are being felt through and with the body. So this would be the ending point of the breath, which is so subtle, so subtle. Um, sometimes individuals have a propensity or uh, ease in being more aware of the ending of the breath versus where the breath starts. So it's, it's, um, it's um, kind of segregated, the mindfulness for the individual who's starting out. Um, so the key is to bridge these two, bridge them and bring them to the middle and the whole thing, uh, see the whole thing. Um, also, he is fully attentive to both the beginning and vanishing point of how the body is experienced, mindful of both the point of origin and of passing away of these transitions and states as they arise and come to an end while they are being felt through and with the body. Again, kaye um, kayanupasi, <clears throat> seeing it. Um, the body in and of itself, sometimes it's translated. So you're seeing the body within the body. That's another way of seeing it. Ultimately, what we're trying to say here is that 
you're staying nowhere else other than with the body, the experience of the body. Hence, the, my beginning remarks about our uh, tendency to believe and worship our concepts, which separates us, cuts us off from life itself. And long before there was this thing called somatic uh, training or somatic therapy or connecting with the body, experiential therapy, all these things, thousands of years before, Lord Buddha had seen what trauma experts um, are discovering today, which is in order to pull the person out of their anguish, their suffering, their depression, their anxieties, what have you, the easiest way is to bring them to the body slowly, establishing a sense of safety in them. And that's what we're seeing. A sense of safety also means that the person is no longer engaging in the tug of war, of hating the world or having desire for the world. You have gone beyond the like and dislike. So that is a place of safety, which you are using the body to access. And that is what we're seeing beautifully presented here in this Mahasatipatthana. Further, he lives realizing that here there is in fact a body, but without being fixated on it, yet remaining relaxed by clearly knowing it and perceptively present to it. So you're just observing it. Yes, you're alert, but you're mindful. You're not fixated on it. You're not doing absorption. You're not doing absorption concentration at all. So uh, here we're being instructed to use the rupa portion of the nama rupa. If you've heard me use that word or you've come across it many times in the suttas, nama rupa is again the first aggregate when we look at the pancha kanda. Um, so rupa is the one that is most tangible, the most observable. Um, that's where we have the four great elements. Um, as I was uh, describing using uh, Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw's um, explanation on the breath being related with the belly. So we're closely observing this. We're closely observing the body. So if you, I'm, I'm sharing these thoughts here because this is uh, where the launching uh, pad is for all the other aspects of the Kaya Anupassana to follow. So if we follow the same principles here that we're doing with the breath, with other aspects of the Kaya Anupassana, such as the four um, states uh, that the body finds, major states that it finds in standing, sitting, etc. As we're staying with it, we still are on solid ground. We're practicing correctly. So here, uh, the body is chosen because it is the loudest, it is the most tangible versus, let's say, perceptions or uh, memories or sankharas, which, as I mentioned, will be coming later. Uh, and those are the nama portion, by the way. Uh, nama portion. So we start from the rupa. In this way, as he lives secluded, withdrawn from all things offered by the world, the bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it. 
This is how the bhikkhu meditates, while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states. So here is where the breath portion, the anapana portion of the Mahasatipatthana ends. Versus uh, the anapana satisutta. It has 16 aspects, if you recall. It has tetrads, fours, fours. So we only use the first tetrad, if you notice. Noticing if it's long or short, noticing... Uh, well, paying attention to the whole body of the breath and then working with the sankharas. And that was it, the first tetrad. So um, Lord Buddha jumps to the others. Um, um, and so Anapanasati was uh, specifically for the breath and uh, also uh, relates with the jhana practices, etc., more concretely. Um, um, so and let's go now to the bodily postures. Uh, so meditation on the bodily postures. This is the second of the Kayanapasana sections. So um, further, because while walking, the bhikkhu knows that he is walking. While standing, he knows that he is standing. While sitting, he knows that he is sitting. While lying down, he knows that he is lying down. Also, with every interval and junction point as he transitions in between each of these postures, and however his body is positioned, the bhikkhu knows their true state. Oftentimes, the intervals or the transitions between these four states, four postures, as they're called typically or traditionally, these intervals, uh, and as uh, Bhante uh, Nyanananda would explain, are often neglected to be considered. Well, if I'm sitting down and now I'm standing or doing walking meditation, what was the bridge between these two states, these two postures? I mean, I was sitting, now I'm standing. What happened? Usually people are completely oblivious. You're in one room and all of a sudden you're in the other room. You're in the bedroom or in the bathroom, now you're in the bedroom or in the bathroom. Or in the living room or in your car. Another great example is if you live in uh, big cities, um, especially if you drive. Um, I haven't noticed this when I was uh, using the buses, but especially when I would drive from point A to point B, I would get to my destination after 45 minutes, let's say driving from Los Angeles to Sandy, uh, Orange County. Um, all of a sudden, I would just like open my eyes and I'm in Orange County. Like, what happened to the between, point in between? Like, what, what happened? Where was I? Lost in concepts. Yes, if you recall, yes, you might remember this freeway, that thing, that junction. But essentially, we were absent for the living experience because there was nothing new or exciting happening. And the mind just went into, you know, coma mode almost. Um, so here, the four postures have to also include within them the points in between, the transition points that I mentioned, or the stages in between. Because oftentimes, <laughs> well, we have the best example with Venerable Ananda. He didn't 
actually, and some people have even debated on this, uh, Venerable Ananda did not attain arahantship while he was sitting, nor did he become awakened, become arahant, while he was lying down. The suttas are very, uh, the Vinaya Pitaka uh, is very clear on this. As he was moving from a point of sitting to lying down, putting his head on the pillow, at that point, before he hit the pillow, he became an arahant. That is a transition point. That is a junction between these two clearly uh, uh, like demarcations of two separate states, that postures that we see here. So we need to be more fluid in our understanding because there's a lot that's being lost if we're becoming too rigid in our understanding or the principles. Uh, so, uh, but, and that also tells us about the uh, such high, high levels of attentiveness and mindfulness, especially of Venerable Ananda who was not letting go, because Nibbana does not occur in absent-mindedness, in, in a moment where you are not mindful. That's never going to be the case. It is only when you are still holding the hand of whatever object it is, if it's the breath, if it's the Chitanapasana or the feeling, or because he was exhausted, he had been walking, meditation, meditating, he was sitting, and he was old, an old man. He was over 80 years old. And I'm sure if you've exhausted yourself that much and you look over and there's this pillow, it's so inviting. He's so tired, so, so, so tired. And he doesn't know because tomorrow morning, early in the morning, in a few hours, in fact, they were going to have the first council. And he, was supposed to be there, but only under the condition that he would be an arahant first. So he was most probably observing, even though the texts say he was observing Kayanapasana, but most probably he was also observing his dhammas, meaning the perplexities, the, the fears perhaps. What if I don't make it? What if I don't make it? Oh, look at the pillow. It's so inviting. It's so warm. Oh, my body's aching. Let me put my head down. So he wasn't lost in any of those. He was watching these dhammas take place. He never was letting go of his mindfulness. That's why it's so important to have our mindfulness not slip during these intervals between these four. Thus, the bhikkhu lives while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states, whether they are taking place internally, externally, or both internally and externally. Further, he is fully attentive to the beginning point. And I will try to speed up uh, because we've gone over this, but it's please, when you are listening to it, especially when you're reading it, read the whole thing uh, for... Uh, our purposes uh, to cover the Mastapratana, I'm trying to make most of the time. So further, so he goes uh, point of the beginning point and the vanishing point, 
and then both the beginning and vanishing points of how the body is experienced, mindful of both the point of origin and passing away of these transitions and states as they arise and come to an end. If you're getting drowsy, if you're getting bored, if you're getting sleepy, if you're getting restless, there was a point of origin to all these. And if they're still happening, how come I'm not aware of it? Okay, let me lock on that. Let me be mindful of it. Let's stay with whatever it is that's happening. Further, he lives realizing that here there is in fact a body, but without being fixated on it, yet remaining relaxed by clearly knowing it and perceptively present to it. Nowhere do we see the words noting, 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 noting. Sitting, 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 getting up, getting up, getting up, walking, walking, walking. No. Those have a place for a person who's extremely, who has an extremely distracted mind, scattered mind. To kind of put them into bite size, if you will, uh, chunks, so that they could start learning what mindfulness is. But the key words here have always been Knowing, Pajanati, Lord Buddha says, Pajanati, the bhikkhu knows, the person knows what position the body is in. That's all. That's all. But stay with the body. In this way, as he lives secluded, withdrawn from all things offered by the world, the bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it. This also is how the bhikkhu meditates, while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it, and all its transitions, inter intervals, and states. Uh, meditation, uh, and so this is the third. Uh, now we're getting into the clear comprehension. Um, and uh, so meditation on behaving with clear comprehension and thorough understanding. Remember, understanding cannot happen without knowing just what is going on every second. Again, without being fixated on any of this. Uh, because fixation will create agitation and, and anxiety in the mind. So, further bhikkhus, while going somewhere and while returning, the bhikkhu behaves with clear comprehension and thorough understanding. While looking forward, around him, or in any direction, the bhikkhu behaves with clear comprehension and thorough understanding. While bending and stretching his body, the bhikkhu behaves with clear comprehension and thorough understanding. While putting on and wearing his robes, his outer robe, and his alms bowl, the bhikkhu behaves with clear comprehension and thorough understanding. While eating and drinking, chewing and tasting his food, the bhikkhu behaves with clear comprehension and thorough understanding. While urinating and defecating, the bhikkhu behaves with clear comprehension and thorough understanding. While walking, standing, sitting, sleeping, waking up, talking, and keeping silent, the bhikkhu behaves with clear comprehension and thorough understanding. Again, uh, th th this is being addressed, uh, this teaching, uh, the audience happened to be bhikkhus. But please uh, do not think that it's only for bhikkhus. I mean, you know, this is for everyone. Um, so, but specific specifically as bhikkhus, especially 
those living at the time of the Buddha. Having an alms bowl was a luxury <laughs> in many cases because it was made usually out of clay. It was you know, made out of pottery. Um, or, or the robes. Many of them had come about to have a robe um, because they went to the charnel grounds and they picked them up and they washed them and they cleaned them and then they dyed them and they were now, after preparing them, they were wearing them. So how you sit with the robes, how you're um, putting down the alms bowl, how you're wearing your outer robe is extremely, uh, well, that's, that's, that's going to keep you warm. That's going to provide you with food. So when, uh, for example, Venerable Angulimala, when he was being struck by people, Every time he went to Pindapada, as he returned, he would come back wounded and, and blood was running from his nose, his head, etc. And there's a scene where he would, he would uh, come back and um, it says how uh, the bowl was, was broken. They had tossed rocks and things, stones at him, so... He had fallen, and alms bowl was, was in, still in his hand, but it was not just cracked, but it was broken. Part of it was missing, but he was still holding on to it because he could even put maybe, maybe one handful of rice in there, and that would be his food. So, especially as bhikkhus, when we um, do, and if we, many of us are not doing this uh, today because of uh, modern uh, societal pressures and things and, and, and the scarcity of such situations or environments. Um, nevertheless, uh, when bhikkhus do go on pindapada or when we're eating, uh, first of all, when we're picking up or, or having people put food into our bowls, we are not allowed to look at them in the eyes. We're looking down, we're gazing down. We're not engaging in a conversation with anyone either. We're definitely not saying, I, I like that, some of that, please, not, well, well, let's skip that. There is none of this. None of this. Uh, because the other ascetics at the time of Lord Buddha, many of them, well, like you have seen in previous suttas explorations, they are, were naked. That means their private parts, their reproductive organs were completely out in the open and then they're very, you know, vulgar and shocking and, and they were engaging in conversations. So it's a very obscene um, environment to be in. And that's another factor why the laity became so gravitated towards Lord Buddha and his monks and his Sangha, because there was this serenity about them. So unfortunately, uh, that's not always the case today, even with Theravada and bhikkhus. Um, but these are uh, inspirational for us to go back to the source and how we're supposed to do it. Um, so bringing mindfulness into the everyday life and no matter how minuscule or completely unrelated with so-called spirituality it may seem, like defecating 
defecating, urinating. I mean, come on, Bhante, don't talk about the bathroom activities, polygons of nature. No, but Lord Buddha is giving us the permission to take it there. When you're taking a shower, where is your mindfulness? All these things. Are you aware of your, of your body when you are stretching to get into your clothing? Are you feeling the texture of your, of your clothing? When you're combing your hair? All these things. There's so much information there that Lord Buddha is saying, don't miss out on this. Any moment is a perfect moment for Nibbana to occur, he's saying, basically. So, uh, leaving thoughts and concepts out of the equation, because when we're sitting, even when we're eating, most of the time I see people sitting down with the phone next to them and always checking, checking. I've gone on retreats <laughs> with bhikkhus, and the teacher has their phone next to them. <laughs> checking. Checking while there is interview, uh, interviews going on. <laughs> so just, you know, there's not going to be atabu tangnyana dasana there. Knowing how things come to be. Seeing how things come to be occurring. Thus, the bhikkhu lives while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states, whether they are taking place internally, externally, or both internally and externally. So um, sometimes you're going to have urgent tasks come in, ideas, oh, I have to do this, I have to do that, I should be doing this. Oh, is there something walking on my legs or my toes? All these concepts and thoughts always have this sense of urgency about them if you've paid attention. Or when you're about to say something to someone and you're holding yourself back, all of a sudden there's pressure increasing. No, no, go ahead and say it. Go ahead and say it. It's almost like as if you're going to give them the most secret information about in, in the whole existence. But it's not. It's just something that you saw on the street and you just want to share it with them. But there is this desire desire, which pulls you out of what is happening in the body. So Lord Buddha is saying, forget about all that. Come back to the most basic things. How does the seat that you're on feel? Are you cognizant of how your feet are positioned, for example? Is your head tilted forward, back, to the side more so than the others? Is it balanced neutrally? How? So all these are tactics that Lord Buddha is trying to use to pull us away from being, um, pull, you know, tactics to help us from being pulled away, from being and staying with the body, and therefore to remain uh, mindful with, uh, of it. So I'm going to jump through this section because we went over it a few times as far as uh, being mindful of their transitions at the point of beginning, the vanishing point, as well as both beginning and vanishing points of these transitions as they're occurring. As they're occurring. Let's say you're brushing your teeth. 
or not with the intention to be vulgar in any way when you're urinating can you observe it at the point of, of its start or was it just a matter of the tension and the pressure that you just had to relieve yourself of and then comes the attention then comes the mindfulness see if you can bring it from that point of the beginning point and then stay with it all throughout until the end uh this is a this in this way is the big as he lives secluded withdrawn from all things offered by the world the bhikkhu is fully attentive uh this also is how the bhikkhu meditates while being attentive and staying with the body so next we get to the attention on repulsiveness particular in pali the repulsive um the um the things that we shun we don't want to look at um so Lord Buddha uh, continues saying, further bhikkhus, the bhikkhu carefully reviews and examines his physical body, seeing it wrapped up in this bag of skin, full of impurities within, while scanning it from the bottom of his feet, moving upwards, and then from the tips of his head hairs, scanning downward. As he ponders, in this body, there are to be found head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, and skin. Also flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestines, small intestines, the stomach with undigested food inside, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, snot, synovial fluid, and urine. Just as if because there was a sack, a bag with openings on both ends, full of various kinds of grain, just as, as such as white uh, no, uh, excuse me, wheat, rice, mung beans, chickpeas, sesame seeds, and husked rice. Then a man with good eyesight, taking that sack and opening it from both ends, is able to carefully look at its contents, distinguishing each as, this is wheat, this is rice, these are mung beans, these are chickpeas, these are sesame seeds, and this is husked rice. Uh, in the same way, because the bhikkhu carefully reviews and examines his physical body, seeing it wrapped up in this bag of skin, full of impurities within, while scanning it from the bottom of his feet, moving upwards, and then from the tips of his head hairs, scanning downwards, as he ponders all the rest uh, that we just went over, um, the head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, and skin. So, concepts and thoughts hide reality from us and this practice and, and it definitely um, cuts us from experiencing the body as it is and this practice especially pulls the rug from all of um, from, from under us in relying on concepts um, it completely deflates our conceptual balloons about this self-image that we have. This is who I am. This is me. This is mine. And to have Lord Buddha present us, this is, notice this is happening before we get to the charnel grounds. So here people get, some people get offended, some people don't like it in this very manicured, you know, uh, society of ours uh, with political correctness um, to hear the word snot 
to hear the to hear the words uh, feces or urine or synovial fluid or fat that's another term we don't we don't ever use right um so but this is all of this combination is talking about the contents of the bag that has openings on both ends if you notice both openings so it's not a burlap bag that's you know like it's got one opening it's got both that's a reference to the mouth and the anus by the way the body it goes in from one end it goes out from the other so a bhikkhu or a meditator is looking at the contents of the body in such a realistic, pragmatic, practical way, down to earth. Okay, let's see what's inside. Let's open it up. So uh, our beliefs hold us back. Our concepts are holding us back belief that this is who I am, this is my body, the person becomes depressed when they see themselves in the mirror, or especially if they see a younger image of themselves. I used to see on social media, people who would post pictures of themselves that are about 20 years old, the picture, the photograph. And I know the person, I just saw them like two, three days ago, let's say, and they don't look anything like that. But that's the picture they have. Well, why? Where are the mung beans there? Where are the wheat? Where's the rice? Where's the sesame seeds there in the bag? The person is delusional. We are delusional. We love to, we like and love to stay with our beliefs and concepts as to what we like to think is happening, how we look etc. And we do our best to go back to that as, as humanly as possible. But when it is impossible, we try to cheat our way. So thus the bhikkhu lives while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states, whether they are taking place internally, externally, or both internally and externally. Further, he is fully attentive to the beginning point, the vanishing point, the beginning and vanishing points of how the body is experienced, mindful of both. Um, but without being fixated on it, I'm jumping through sections uh, again, uh, again, because we've gone over them already, uh, yet remaining relaxed by clearly knowing it and perceptively present to it. In this way, as he lives secluded, withdrawn from all things offered by the world, the bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it. This also is how the bhikkhu meditates while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states. Next, we get to the elements, uh, the great elements, the four. Attention on the elements, attention placed on the elements, that is. Further, because the bhikkhu closely observes this physical body in whatever shape or position it may be as the manifestation of the elements while reflecting to himself. In this body, I see the properties of the earth element, the properties of the water element, the properties of the fire element, and the properties of the air element. Just as if because a master butcher or his apprentice having slaughtered a cow would sit at a crossroads cutting it up into pieces, the bhikkhu also closely reviews this very body in whatever shape or position it may be 
as the manifestation of the element. While reflecting to himself, in this body I see the properties of the earth element, the properties of the water element, the properties of the fire element, and the properties of the air element. So like I was mentioning earlier with the belly breathing or the Mahasi method of doing a vipassana, um, which was unlike you know using it with the nostrils. So uh, he would use the belly, but that would also be a, a way for him to gauge and to look at the four great elements taking shape right there under his nose. Uh, the meditator, that is. And so you're seeing the, the pressure, you're seeing the softness. So the first thing that would come up other than the physical body that we're inhabiting is the air element, the pressure. Uh, or the gases that come up, you know, um, or uh, the feeling of uh, the liquid. If you if you've, um, you feel the inside organs of you and just how, or the pulses, as your awareness and the mindfulness goes deeper, you start feeling the pulsation or the blood rushing through your veins. So that has the fluidity of the, the water element. As you're meditating more and more, your, your body's temperature changes. So you're noticing the presence or absence of the fire element. So these are just snippets of where we can see the four elements, but they're happening all the time, all the time. It's just that we're not cognizant, of, we're not paying attention, enough attention to them. But even that, Lord Buddha saying, if by paying attention to even one of these elements can allow you to use it as a conduit, as a direct path to full realization, to Nibbana. Thus the bhikkhu lives while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states, whether they are taking place internally, externally, or both internally and externally. Uh, a trick that you can do, or, or uh, <laughs> um, I, this is especially for people who have their attention being externally directed. They're too invested in what's happening outside of them. Uh, a smart meditator could not uh, could also uh, uh, use this as the external attentiveness rather as as a way to catch up to the breath by using someone else's kaya sankara. What I mean by this is, I, I gave the example of uh, observing your pet. Uh, sleeping or breathing or somebody else like a baby infant the person might com completely be uh, oblivious to their own breathing going on but you can observe the breathing that is going on thanks to the four great elements taking shape in front of you in this body of this child this infant who's breathing so by you observing their breathing process their kaya nupasana becomes a way for you to practice satipatthana. Because it establishes mindfulness back. And suddenly, you basically, you use someone else's breathing <laughs> to reconnect because you were too absent-minded. You were too scattered. 
It doesn't matter. So when we hear the words external versus internal, and both internal and external, you're so mindful, you're so present that anything that you gaze upon is a way for you to detour your way back to your own practice, basically. So you can look at it like that as well. So you're not just using your body, but you can, in a very uh, smart way and ingenious way, apply that same principle to cause your distracted mind to be anchored on something else and then be used to be brought back in, into your body. Um, so let's not just look at when, when we're looking at the body that it's only about this body inside. If you remember, I think I mentioned to you about Chula Pantaka. Chula Pantaka, who was considered to be dumb, um, um, mentally retarded and things like that, even though that's a term that we don't use in the society anymore. But he was shunned and, and frowned upon within the Sangha, even though his brother was an Arahant. But Lord Buddha gave him a tool for him to rub his thumb and index finger on this piece of white cloth. He couldn't concentrate. He couldn't even memorize a single verse, a single line of verse, or even a single word that Lord Buddha gave. That's how bad his mental state was. But Lord Buddha gave him a tool to use his body with, but upon this external object, externally, remember? Whether internally, externally, or both internally, externally, that's external. So that was used for him to become cognizant of how his defilements were really defiling the white clean piece of cloth. Because he saw that, okay, I'm rubbing it to clean it up. No, 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 he was doing the opposite. Because his bodily oils, skin, and all that, and dirt was being passed on to this clean, crisp piece of white cloth, which is now dirty and smudged. That was his way to turn his sati into panya, so much so that he attained arahanship right there. And then this dull person, this dumb person, so you can actually use the external in a very skillful way. Also, when you're finding yourself too distracted. So I just wanted to put that out there. In this way, as he lives secluded, withdrawn from all things offered by the world, the bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it. This also is how the bhikkhu meditates while being fully attentive, carefully staying with the body, mindful of it in all its transitions and states. Uh, next, we get to the nine charnel grounds, which I'm thinking maybe we should put a stop today uh, and just uh, continue on uh, next week from this point on, because this is rather long and I don't want to be um, um, jumping, because uh, there's nine different sections of the charnel ground uh, aspects of the Satipatthana that Lord Buddha covers. So to do it justice. Um, so why don't we stop uh, here for today and also give uh, uh, perhaps a chance if there's any, uh, there are any questions for us to address. Uh, 
it's it came out to be 35 pages long <laughs> the sutta so and it's every word um, counts every every um there's not going to be any compromises there so this is a a giant among suttas and uh, uh, we need to appreciate and 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 study it as as often and listen to it and read it as much as possible any thoughts questions again about the practice of the sutta the dhamma thank you bante as usual i have some things i need to clarify yes. so this is the um sutta on mindfulness so when i'm reading here that um the bhikkhus are living secluded, withdrawn, etc. I normally hear those words in regard to meditation, mm -hmm. but this has nothing to do with meditation because is that correct? Are you saying, and I can see it, but perhaps it might be part of Vipassana, but it can't be part of Samadha at all because we can't be mindful at the same time as we're trying to remove those thoughts from our mind. And obviously that's where I'm starting to stumble over. Mm the differences between how this fits in with perhaps jhana meditation and um, then Vipassana, the uh, insight that they'd be getting. Um, and when they're doing these things, when you're being mindful of your body, I'm not certainly not doing jhana meditation. So it's, as I said, it was the being secluded and withdrawn, that word that you've those words that you've put here associated with meditation for me, but it isn't meditation. So are we just being um, also secluded from the hindrances while we're being mindful? Or is it is there some association with meditation? Can you just fix that for me? Uh, yeah, it's, it's actually, there is no separation between mindfulness and meditation. They are part of the same thing. It's like having a thumb along with your index, middle finger, ring finger, and, and pinky. They're part of the same, they work together to do things and to help things, uh, to help things to unfold and the transformation process uh, within the mind and life of the person, because without the mindfulness part, without the meditation. So that is where I have a hard time to, to, trying to understand as to why would there be a need to separate them. I understand you mentioned about the jhanas versus, or the samatha practice, versus the vipassana which here we see it strongly being anchored um, uh, or, or at least being uh, talked about this is the sutta for it vipassana uh, satipatthana after all now the separation of samatha and vipassana is one that is uh, unnecessarily um, uh, been promoted first of all so we have to go to the source of this separation, this 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 uh, disconnect, and this was a problem that I had been dealing with and struggling with myself, uh, because um, I was shunning, I was looking down upon some of the practice. After some time, after coming across some teachers and um, bhikkhus, and also the intensive reading that I was doing. Now the readings that I was doing. Uh, whether they were commentaries like Visuddhi Magga or um, Mahasi Sayadaw material or other students and, and 
uh, Western uh, writers as well, and uh, especially monks though, um, I was seeing there for the mo majority of them, and this is happening about 15, 20 years ago. Um, I was seeing that there was this taboo as it related to samatha practice. Uh, because the taboo was uh, justified often that, uh, and this comes from the Burmese tradition, uh, which was highly, highly, is highly influenced by the Visuddhimagga and the Abhidhamma, um, with this notion that uh, there, if you want to attain liberation, then the path for you must be uh, solely based on vipassana practice. And for that, you have the satipatthana, because the other one simply delays the process, the samatha practice. So there was an unnecessarily, unneeded, uh, and completely uh, futile uh, state of affairs of uh, creating a chaos within the mind of the practitioner, especially one who's been practicing and uh, uh, trying to practice um, uh, the meditation according to the suttas. And this is where. Uh, I jumped in back into the suttas proper to find out for myself. And as I was reading both sources now, not just the commentaries, I was reading the suttas, I saw how there is no separation that Lord Buddha is making. In fact, you have the uh, Anupada Sutta of Venerable Sariputta's awakening process where he's going stage by stage, stage by, from the lowest, from the small, the rupa jhanas to the arupa jhanas, all the way to Niroda Samavati. As he's aware. Now this completely threw a wrench into the whole system. Not just this sutta, but Lord Buddha's in, insistence on practicing the jhanas. Well, wait a minute. I was so compelled to, to, I mean, this was so plaguing me. One time um, I was at the university and there was a visiting bhikkhu, an ajahn, a very well-known, but I'm not going to mention his name, of course. Very respectable. Uh, uh, he's also a translator. And uh, I, I raised my hand and I said, excuse me, Bhante, ajahn, uh, could you clarify this point for me? And I, I brought up this subject of uh, samatha equals or slash jhana versus vipassana, insight, where there is light at the end of the tunnel, basically. And I said, could you help me? Because I feel quite stupid because I have a difficulty understanding why is there this perpetuation of this notion that these two are separate when I'm really trying like you know scratching my head all the time justifying such a claim with what i'm seeing lord buddha saying in the suttas that we need them both and he was silent and he said you have a point and he says we are all at fault as translated as, but he says you're right, there is no separation in the suttas. And that's all I needed to hear. That kind of gave me the legitimacy to go ahead and really dig deep and throw away the commentaries for good, unless I really needed to. 
um, and um, really, really needed to. But I went to the suttas and everything unfolded. Everything I needed was there. So when you talk about the jhanas, um, especially when we get to the, um, the bhajangas, satta bhajangas or sambhajangas, that is often used also for the jhanas because they are number one antidotes for the hindrances. And so long as the hindrances are there, you won't be entering into any jhana. Now, again, the jhanas are not nibbana. They are not nibbana. But that shouldn't lead us to like throw the baby with the bathwater here because the jhanas are crucial resting points. Resting points. Uh, Bhante Punnaji used to say they're like sleep, deep sleep, after a very exhausting day. So you need to have that deep sleep, even if it's like for a little while. Because when you come out of it, the mind is rested. Now, some people to this day consider those states to be actually like attaining the first or second or third or fourth level in some cases of you know, becoming an arahant as a noble descent. That's not it, um, most often. Uh, but it's just a state of coming to a point of rest whereby the mind is able to take from that point on to the next level. Like if you've ever seen the Tour de France, the bike race that happens once a year, uh, it's a long, I don't know how long it is, but it's, it's very long, like several hundred kilometers, I'm presuming, if not more, maybe. But every single uh, racer, every single competitor, um, even though they are top-notch, uh, uh, you know, athletes, uh, they reach a point at the end of each day where they have to rest to regain their energies to go from there to the next level. So you can use that as a metaphor also for the jhanas. Now, coming back to the seclusion part, secluding oneself. Uh, now, secluding can have several meanings, but the very first and essential part of the seclusion has to be external. Like you can see it tangibly. Like you, you cannot, at least in the beginning stages, you cannot be practicing mindfulness or meditation. So if you see, they are similar to me. They, they are not separate the way I'm interpreting it as you see. So you cannot practice meditation uh, in the beginning stages again without having secluded yourself from distracting situations. If your cat is coming and always touching you or your dog or you have phone calls coming in or emails or somebody knocking on your door uh, or you have children running around or a mate always asking for things or that's not the healthy. That's why a lot of people go into retreats and for, to seclude themselves. But oftentimes they actually carry society with them. They bring the, the spouse, the dog, the cat, the lizard, everybody with them. Uh, that's not seclusion because they missed the second part, the meaning of seclusion, which is to seclude yourself from your concepts and thoughts. Oh. The next stage would be seclusion from the hindrances. 
Eventually, it reaches to the level of seclusion from the aggregates themselves, the panchasila. This is where we've reached a, a level where we're seeing the Dhamma. This is where we're seeing the noble truth manif manifest, unfold in front of our eyes, in our living experience, even through the body. So uh, the seclusion is important, and you see it in conjunction with, I'm doing translations for about four years now, and, and every single time I've ever come across the jhanas, there is the preamble, as it were, the first two lines, where Lord Buddha or the uh, uh, arahants, the disciples, are saying, by secluding himself, Da, 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 da. Yeah, the bhikkhu or the person enters, the noble disciples enters into the first jhana. After some point, he enters into the second, the third, the fourth, etc. So you see it there as being a critical part, not just samatha practice, not just samatha practice. If you remember from the, uh, the thoughts of a great man, which we've covered, I think it was the sixth. Uh, week on in the Sutta Exploration series we've done, where, <coughs> excuse me, Lord Buddha's uh, sees Venerable Anuruddha's thoughts, and Venerable Anuruddha comes up with seven great thoughts, and one of them is, he says, this path, this Dhamma is for someone who delights in seclusion. Ah. He wasn't talking about samatha or vipassana. So seclusion is a must. There's no ways if and but about it. It's not something specifically and only for the jhana practice. Not at all. Because eventually, if you notice, I said in the beginning part of the jhana practice, the person needs to be secluded from external situations. But eventually, with good practice and good uh, instruction, uh, that person could actually enter and come out of jhanas even while being engaged in something else. Standing up, washing the dishes, for example. Sitting down, in a, in a, sitting in a bus with your eyes open. You can still experience jhanas. Now, this is uh, controversial for some teachers. Uh, <laughs> Bhante Punaji used to disagree with this point um, um, sometimes. Um, but, you know, uh, by the way, how is this, uh, do you feel this is addressing your question? Yes, of course, it's probably going to take a little while to integrate everything you're saying. And I've got other things I'm trying to comprehend while you're saying it. So it's a little bit of a challenge. I see that you're saying that well, what I'm trying to put together is that we're experiencing our body while we're we're doing this, being mindful and meditating is the one thing. So when I'm meditating, when I my previous understanding of being mindful would be to observe when I'm observing the body, I'm doing that with the reason to notice the thoughts and feelings that occur in my body and to see them as the craving and the aversion and to be able to let that go. That's where the relaxed part comes in with those sensations in my body and the feelings that I have. And I don't see anything so far in this mentioning when those feelings coming up and doing anything about them, but just, just the noticing part. 
So I'm guessing that's the, another disconnect that I've got between what I'm reading in the, the suitor so far, and, and I don't know whether it comes up later, but the suitor so far and my understanding of meditation, in, oh, sorry, my understanding of mindfulness is there's no doing something about those thoughts and feelings that come up. I'm just simply observing there. Mm -hmm, observing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, uh, yes, your position is, is becoming a lot clearer to me. Uh, and and I, I agree that there is this uh, new um, way of understanding that is required to really uh, embrace the, the present meaning or what the message is being presented as within, for example, this sutta. And yes, as it unfolds, as it opens up into the other three aspects, once we've completed the body, kaya nupasana, you do see the feelings come into uh, view. Uh, you do see, uh, obviously, the chitta, the chittanupassana, uh, and also, and especially, the uh, dhammanupassana, where we do see both, in fact, the hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. So everything becomes an object of, object of meditation. Nothing escapes your realm of, or your, your observation. Now, again, you said, with the reason, doing this with the reason. That is having an ulterior motive. So that's one of the reasons why um, I have been critical of certain current schools of meditation, uh, including the jhana practices, etc. Given the uh, position that is held within the mind, that often causes us to completely neglect to look at the attitude with which we're coming to the question where it's all a matter of how long have you sat? Well, who cares? I've jokingly said about the rock, you know, they've discovered some rocks in, in, in Canada, north of Canada, that were about 3.2 billion years old. Billion, with a B. And the whole planet has about a lifespan of 4.6 billion. So it was right after the protoplanet stage where it was all liquid lava. So it had just cooled down enough to form into rock. So it means nothing to sit for hours and then you come out and all hell breaks loose in a sense once that nice, soft, restful state is over. Because you were just suppressing, even though many of these schools are saying, no, 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 we're understanding, we're doing the six R's, da, 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 da. No, you're not. The behavior says it all. The person might have been going it like a formula, but they have not been observing with wisdom what is happening because there was an intention of craving all along that I want to get to the next jhana or I want to become a noble disciple. So there's greed there, spiritual greed present. And oftentimes this turns into what I like to call spiritual exhibitionism where people compare notes. They like to talk to each other. They like to share, oh, when I was experiencing this jhana, I've, I've been present at these, you know, encounter groups, I guess. But the ultimate thing is it has nothing to do with the Dhamma. It, when looked at with a point of, I am completely oblivious of my attitude in this. So we need to check the attitude because loba, dosa, moha are not external from us outside. 
They are in us. Every time we sit, chances are they're with us. They're cozily, comfortably. Actually, they're on the cushion before we get there. And that's one of the reasons why it feels like somebody's pushing us away from the cushion. But aren't we looking for those lobha dosa moha? We're not necessarily actively looking because they will show up whether we like them or not. Unfortunately, our blindness comes from the fact that I have a goal in mind. I want to experience this. I want to experience that, even though I'm not coming out verbally saying it. But I'm refusing to see what is happening while I'm sitting. And that's another thing. That's, uh, that, that's where I was going with the, the sitting long part. Lord Buddha never said, just sit. He never said that. And he didn't say, just sit and sit long. He never said that. Yeah, I'd never seen it anywhere in the suttas. He does say, and he does go at length explaining this, the need for us to bring the Dhamma with us everywhere we go. I mean, he just said, when you're pooping and when you're urinating, number one and number two, or number two and number one, take it with you anywhere you go. I mean, come on. But we don't do that. Walking meditation. There have been arahants who have attained as they were walking. Walking. We don't hear about them being talked about. There have been arahants, many arahants, many bhikkhuni arahants. You see it in the Teriyatas, beautiful poems and stanzas of these arahants who are describing how as she was blowing out the candle or the, the, the wick uh, in her lantern, oil lamp, at that moment she became an arahant. It wasn't haphazardly happening where she was mining or doing other things. No, she was present. She was definitely not sitting at that moment. So we need to take it out of the sitting, the cushion. I'm not against sitting, of course. <laughs> uh, but please, let's open the doors and move out of these labels, including the mental, conceptual, the... Uh, um, that that put us in like um, in a in a barrel that's full of concrete, wet and but it, it's, it's it actually dries out pretty fast. These ideas and that's what Lord Buddha called michaditi, wrong view. So there is coming back to your original question. There is this preponderance of wrong view that is everywhere in the Dhamma, in this tradition specifically. I'm not interested in other traditions anymore, just this. So to the point where we are carrying these wrong views into our practice. Now, uh, now coming back to your uh, later point where you said, but aren't we looking for them? Loba dosa moha. We don't have to look for them. We just have to see, but see with clear eyes. Without the fog or the veil of my intention as to what I am after here. The spiritual greed must be seen. You have meditators who spent real legitimate hours of dedicated practice with a lot of aditana, but never questioning their spiritual greed. Remember last week I was talking about what's in it for me attitude. 
that is at the crux of the 99% of meditators today, real, legitimate, hardworking meditators today. At the crux of it, but we are not seeing it. Remember some time ago, maybe a few years ago, I mentioned about that farmer uh, or the, the, the person who, who has uh, donkeys, 100 donkeys. And every day, every morning, he counts. He had 100 donkeys. And, and, and he would count. And that day, he counts, and he only gets 99. And he starts accusing his neighbors, and he's get ready to go and, and, and kill somebody, I guess. And his neighbors come to the rescue, and they say, what's the problem? And he says, well, I have 100, but I'm counting 99. And they count, and they get 100. And he sa they say, well, did you count the one you're sitting on? We are not counting the donkey we're sitting on. While we are working in the context or from the point of view that we are doing or living the Dhamma or practicing the Dhamma proper, by, without even asking the very first question, what is my attitude? Remember, Lord Buddha started with the first one, right? What is? What is my view? Is it right or wrong? Meaning, do I start with the wrong attitude or correct attitude? And this is where many meditators are failing miserably, and they don't know why. And that what they do in return is to go ahead and read more, to do more retreats, thinking that they are ameliorating the situation by adding more data, which actually is making things worse. And for that, we have the Lord Buddha's example of the different bowls of water, if you recall, the different bowls. And he was using it in reference um, uh, to the... Uh, uh, the five hindrances. Um, and, and so you have um, tumultuous, you have muddy water and things, you have water that's moving and shaking. So we have that. So it's fogging and, and it's clouding our view of what it is we are supposed to be doing. So the Loba Dosa Moha, they are there with you. They never left us. And the moment they, they do not show up, it's not because or thanks to the suppressive qualities of our meditation practice. No, it's those moments of insight when they occur. That is a mini jnana dasana. Mini jnana, mini, mini uh, being able to see with understanding the Dhamma. The more we have of those occur, but they, they won't occur unless we have an, a, a really good heart-to-heart -heart look at my attitude towards the Dhamma, especially my practice. Uh, I was going to say something else about that, I think. Yeah, so Loba Dosa Moha will, are there, they will reveal themselves. In fact, they are always there. It's like suddenly if, if there's a, you know, some movies, uh, some movie came out in the 80s, The Predator, um, where um, you had Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, example, or, or their, their commanders, whatever, so it's a violent movie, but the thing that I extracted from that is the different dimensions or the different views, views, that obviously they're looking and they're seeing something is there, some sounds they're hearing, the predator apparently is an, is an alien, is a uh, violent Hollywood, I mean, they always depict anything that's not human as violent, obviously. So they're depicting this alien as, as, you know, using different levels of cloaking devices, basically. 
And finally, they figure out like they have ultraviolet um, spectrum um, uh, glasses or things. And suddenly the thing comes alive or infrared, they see the body heat. So as our wisdom is increasing through the right means of practice, we are utilizing different levels of the infra, uh, electromagnetic spectrum, electromagnetic spectrum. So basically, we're not just looking radio waves, we're looking at the infrared waves. If, if that, I mean, using some science lingo, does that, is that helping or making things more confusing? No, that's all, <clears throat> all wonderful, thank you. So I, you bring up more points as you are talking. It's, you mentioned that some bhikkhus have become arahants while they're walking and um, while they're putting their head on their pillow but they're doing it because they're being mindful. They've got their mind fully on even the activity between the two mm -hmm. from sitting to lying down. To me, that strikes me as a, a form of a samatha meditation. They've got all these other extraneous thoughts out of their mind. And so they're, they don't have any hindrances and they're not distracted. And so it's really even though we can see our loba dosa moha arise during doing those activities it's really the the not thinking that's well, not the keeping our mind centered on an object of meditation that's mm -hmm. doing that. would that be a fair comment to, to how these people are achieving arahantship is by that focused not focused mind but still observing just one thing at a time and not letting other things distract their mind. The last portion of what you just said, uh, yes, I'm in complete agreement with, but not the, the because they were actually, let's say, Venerable Ananda, as he was putting his head on, uh, on the pillow, he was practicing samatha. No, that's, uh, that's not correct, the way I understand it. Uh, but samatha is useful because it allows the noise to die down and eventually it gets to be such, like second nature to you. That's why the person is now able to get into the first, second, third, fourth jhana, or even seventh jhana or whatever, uh, not the eighth jhana, uh, while they are engaged in what typically would not be considered as meditating. I mean, how could you look at Venerable Ananda as he's about to put his head on the pillow and say, oh, he's meditating? No. That's what the typical idea of meditation is. That is wrong view. Um, that's what I'm trying to say. However, you said something at the tail end of, of just uh, when, when you were just now speaking, um, at the exclusion of other things. Ah, uh, and Upatissa, I think you made, uh, you, you were saying something here about uh, listening. Uh, um, and many people have attained arahanship. And that, that's a perfect example. Oftentimes, you know, uh, when I encourage you to listen to the Dhamma, I always encourage you to listen with open hearts. What I mean by that is to bring a sense of humility. Let's not have an agenda, a goal in mind, but simply to be there to listen or to read when you're reading it. I found myself years ago when I first started uh, reading the suttas that I had so much weight on my head 
like I was carrying this big, big, heavy stuff, a container on my head, and everything had to match with something I had already seen, read somewhere in the footnotes, in some of the books, I completely missing the whole meaning, the boat, basically, on, on, on what Lord Buddha is saying. Because I was infusing my own ideas, my own thoughts, commentators, commentaries and all that junk into what Lord Buddha or the Arya Savakas were saying. Because there was a fact. The evidence was at the end of that particular sutta or that discourse, I was seeing people who were completely illiterate, attaining even the first stage of awakening, hungry, poor, or mercenary, or serial killers, or even mercenaries in some cases, who having heard Lord Buddha saying something here, boom, something happens and they are noble disciples. They have seen the Dhamma. And I am dedicating going to College of Buddhist Studies five days a week, back in the day when it existed. Five days a week, I was there hours each day. And that was my home sitting with my teachers, just listening and talking and asking questions. This is happening in the 90s. And I'm so far away from that. So what's the problem here? Oh, I was not coming in with the purest of intentions. I had both my hands, like my dad would say, like you're, you're walking around like you're carrying three watermelons. And how are you going to be able to, to focus on what's what? So these individuals who are listening to the Dhamma, they were listening with humility. When they were practicing, I mean, especially during the discourses, you can get into a, a very deep, uh, quiet state, even of a jhana, of course, while somebody's giving a talk, reading the suttas. Um, I know personally individuals who've attained the first level of awakening just by listening to the Dhamma in the 21st century. It happens. And that's one of the reasons why before every Sutta exploration series that we do, before any one of these, I always encourage you to sit for at least half an hour, at least, to prepare the mind, to create that space. So in that same uh, sense, it, it, that's also being seen oftentimes as faith, um, as trusting, not necessarily the person reading it or even the sutta, just allowing yourself to be completely uh, mentally naked from all your concepts. You're creating a clean slate for yourself to take in what's coming. Not greedily, because I've had students in the past who said, yeah, I'm trying to ask you questions so that maybe, maybe you will say that one thing that it's like the magic key and it's unlocking everything. Well, that's going about it the wrong way, I think, because the person is too focused, fixated on finding the solution. So, and this I bring back to your question about loba dosa moha, lust, anger, or hatred and delusion. Shouldn't I be looking at them? Yes and no. Are you fixated on finding them? Because you don't have to look for them. They're all around you. Everything we touch. So long as we're not arahant, it has some smidgen of a little bit of a stain of them or a lot of it. 
you know, a person who works in a sewage is already numb to the horrific smells. And Lord Buddha has, has, has a, in one of the suttas, he says, even a little bit of poop, tiny little bit of it caught in between your nails is enough to be disgusting, to completely change your mood. <laughs> I mean, oh, what, a, what a lovely real image, right? We've all experienced it, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. It's not a pleasant experience. You, that becomes the focus. So, but you have to be attentive to it versus somebody who's numb to it, like a person who works in the sewage system. They don't wear a mask all the time. Eventually they're immune. So that is what we have come. So now we have to walk out of that sewage of living a life that is drenched in the three defilements. And the more we sit, and yes, even the samatha practice, it's not something to be looked down upon. Again, it is a helpful tool, but by itself, it does not take us to Nibbana. It must be combined. And that is where the union happens in the suttas between samatha and vipassana. And the term vipassana, you don't see it that much, in fact, rarely. And it's usually about a different context. It's, it's like seeing deeply and... and so eventually it became this, this, this entire school all on its own, this beast. But again, the panya is there, and that's what we are trying to make room for. And samatha helps us to work because it prepares the mind. Because a person who is just trying to do vipassana without calming the mind is not going to be that successful to begin with. You need to know what calmness is. Because for the mind of that person is in chaos. You know, they don't have that humility. They don't have that humility. So samatha can also allow you to know what it feels like when you find that nice, sweet spot, that mental, emotional, quiet state where you're no longer being pulled by the tug of war. And you're just there and you're hearing and all of a sudden you mentally transported, as if Lord Buddha is saying those words to you as you're hearing the suttas. And you get goose flesh, and your heart starts to settle. And sometimes there's some tears. The mind is not there. Concepts are not there. You're just there. You're just there. And suddenly something you hear and boom, things happen. Wonderful things happen. And you see how alive the Dhamma is. That's when we see that it is sweeter than our own mother's milk, the Dhamma. But the mind has to be relaxed, has to know what it feels to relax. So that's one of the reasons why I highly discourage coming in with our own agendas even though they might sound or feel lofty for us. Always check your attitude. Am I working with what's in it for me? What's in it for me? So being careful. Is this helping to kind of? Perfect, thank you. In Penang, when I was doing a retreat, <laughs> There was one gentleman from Europe who had uh, brought in uh, 
noise uh, reduction or noise killing headphones, huge. And uh, very stern looking is like, you would feel uncomfortable being around him. And we were sharing a room. You would feel intimidated simply because of the energy that was being put out that he was being very serious. And at one point, um, there was a, a person that I was helping um, because they were in major emotional, et cetera, upheavals. So I finally decided to break noble silence and uh, address because I was coming from a place of metta and also to help him because there were some clear uh, breaking of sila that was happening that were creating chaos for this person. So I pulled him aside and just gestured to him if I could share. Not the person with the headphones, by the way. Um, and as I was helping this individual, just by very whisper, you know, whisper. And it wasn't like at nighttime or anything. It was during the day uh, after lunch. And um, this person comes in and he's agitated because he's angry, literally. <laughs> and he didn't like the fact that we were talking. He didn't care about what, what we were talking about or what I was, I was conveying to this other person. And that carried over. Uh, so he was leaving us some nasty notes on like on the pillow every time I came back. Uh, um, so there would be some writing on a piece of paper that he had found. The devas were also playing with the whole thing because I would come and I would see the piece of paper flowing, fly, you know, having flown somewhere else in the room. <laughs> so I wouldn't know what he had written until he would take it back and put it right next to my, you know, mattress. This thing. So and this was supposed to be a metta meditation retreat. And later on, after the retreat is over, you know, people are talking and I, I, I don't know that that's kind of shocking to the system. But anyhow, I see this person approach and, and uh, the, the circle of people and the way that they were talking, it was very much, it's like bullet points. I came to have this and this and this, so I'm going to go ahead and tell people that I've attained this. That is wrong view on many levels. So we need to be careful to check our attitudes. Every time you sit, this is not about someone else. Loba, dosa, moha are not another person's loba, dosa, and mohas. You know. They're ours. And as Ajahn Mahabua would say, uh, your defilements are not going to carry me. Actually, Ajahn Man says that. Your defilements are not going to carry me to the depths of hell. It's my defilements that are going to do that to me. Don't worry. No matter how bad you get the person is, how evil this person is in front of me, creating chaos, no matter how bad of a person, they will never cause me to fall into hell. That responsibility is li lies on my shoulder. So, and that's why we practice to gain uh, understanding. And, but the key thing here is to never, ever uh, limit the significance of right view, ever. And the Eightfold Path is carried with us, whether we're sitting 
whether we're standing, whether we're lying down, whether we're in the bathroom, wherever it may be, the Noble Eightfold Path is not, sometime, is not a sometimes affair. This path is not a sometimes affair. It's ongoing so long as you have breath in your lungs. Hmm. I think there's another note somewhere here. Let me see. Oh, learning not to. This uh, first message I read from Opatissa, uh, and this is from Matthias. Thank you, Bhante. Learning to not blindly believe the concepts in our consciousness certainly sounds like relevant to integrate with more understanding. And I believe this talk already deepened that understanding a bit for me. How hopefully with a hint more ardent sati now. I was earlier listening to your new book and wondered if, i.e., oversleeping is considered a form of sensual misconduct in regards to sila and the third lay precept of training guru. Ah, in regards to sila and the third lay, uh, just sleeping uh, uh, um, is not. Uh, I would not consider it as as a breaking sila. However. Uh, in the book of uh, fives, especially in the numerical discourses, Anguttara Nikaya, Lord Buddha, uh, probably also in the book of fours and sixes, um, but five for sure, uh, Lord Buddha says how when a noble disciple is going deeper in the practice and getting closer and closer to understanding, they will uh, naturally uh, will have... Uh, not completely naturally, because, but you do have some part to play initially, at least, they will have less of a propensity to enjoy talking, one, talking with people, left and right, going out, talking to your neighbors. And the second one is companionship. Companionship. Uh, third is, um, from what I remember, uh, food. So you won't be relying on food uh, as you did. Uh, before and uh, sleep is a big one sleep so you would feel like you need less and less sleep and you find those as wasted opportunities oh man i slept eight hours tonight Ugh. i could have used one hour of that to do walking meditation for example so that becomes more of a natural thing but initially, uh, we need to push. It's like a muscle. It's, if you want to carry heavier weight or be able to have more resistance in your body, you need to push slowly out of your comfort zone. So, so long as we are craving those eight or 10 or nine, whatever hours of sleep you get, so long as you're attached to, that, to those, it will be very difficult for you to be in that category of student who finds it less necessary to be sleeping as much. Now, if you reach that state and you willingly avoid to get up, I wouldn't necessarily call that breaking a sila, but that would be called uh, heedlessness still. But especially when we are meditating or when we're supposed to be sitting and meditating, uh, when hindrances come, it's your responsibility to treat it like somebody coming over at you with a chainsaw to kill you or to kill someone that you love. You have to be extremely alert. So treating it like that 
that also helps. But I wouldn't call that necessarily breaking sila. But the third uh, sila rule, uh, I, I didn't understand from your question clearly, but the precept that we take of not engaging in any sexual misconduct, it's already self-explanatory in the sense that nobody needs to get harmed. This is in case of lay people, of course. Um, and um, and uh, for bhikkhus, it's absolutely uh, forbidden. In fact, if we engage in anything like that, uh, it is it's a defeat, parajika, which means uh, no longer are we supposed to be in robes. We can never reordain in this life. Um, and so that's a big deal. Um, so, um, but for lay people, so long as you, you see that no one's being hurt and no one's being lied to, uh, and by the way, your body is also yours, even though in that third precept, we keep it so you don't harm yourself in, while you're doing it as a lay person engaged in it. Uh, so, um, yeah, but I, if, if you mentioned the book, that, uh, the audio book or the book, that I wrote with the manual. So in that book, there's a huge chapter. I think the biggest chapter I dedicated in that manual was on clarifying sila. So that I do really clarify that point uh, in that chapter. So please feel free to go in and look at it. Uh, are there any um, last questions, uh, thoughts? Okay. Wow, we made two and a half hours. Oh, Russell? Uh, yes, Bande, uh, uh, thank you for the explication. I was wondering whether you could just explain what really intrigued me was uh, when you talked about the mentally ill, hmm. I guess, child, hmm. and uh, the Buddha gave, them a, gave him a, a white cloth, hmm. Hmm. an external device to hmm. um, allow him to um, recognize the internal, although, you know, and then I think you also talk about utilizing or borrowing other people's breath or mm. something like that too. Can you sort of, um, I, I didn't quite understand the, is that a formal method or is this a, an uh, anecdote, uh, kind of a, a device, uh, mm. utilizing the uh, external or borrowing mm. something to, you know, that's, anyway, that's my question, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good question. Um, I um, actually the the bhikkhu, the chula pantaka. He was not a child. Uh, he was a bhikkhu. Uh, he, he, uh, there was maha pantaka and chula pantaka. Chula means small. Maha means great. So great, as in uh, they were putting a distinction between the two brothers. The brother, the older brother, was an arahant. Remember, so that's who they called maha pantaka and chula because he was the younger. They called him chula pantaka. Uh, the smaller, the younger, rather. But um, as far as uh, the the um, the rubbing of the fingers, the thumb against the cloth, using that as a meditation tool, Lord Buddha had actually approached Chulapantaka, giving him um, a verse to memorize. And in the sutta, we see how again Lord Buddha is trying. What a loving, compassionate teacher. Um, and the group were, was actually going on, on a, a, a dana, on a lunch dana that was offered by this rich person. And so they exclude him. Everybody goes and they intentionally leave him out. 
They don't tell him about the lunch. They leave him behind. And Lord Buddha knows this. But before he leaves, uh, they didn't come and tell Lord Buddha, of course, but he knew their mind. But before he left, he gave him this tool. Now, every single time, by the way, when Lord Buddha gave him the verse to remember, remember or memorize, he would fail. That's why we know that he couldn't even remember a single word. So physical object, just like we know in, in, in learning, uh, if you've ever, you know, you're a teacher. So in education, there's different capacities of learning, different methodologies. So there's visual, auditory, uh, abstract or conceptual learners, etc. But there's one that is the kinesthetic or affective, uh, um, um, kinesthetically bodily oriented, tactile perception related learners who need to, who cannot learn, let's say, math with figures, numbers on a blackboard. They need to see actual blocks, apples and oranges, things that they need to touch, marbles, something. And that activates that part of the brain for them. So Lord Buddha apparently was aware of this system 2,000, almost 600 years ago. Uh, so that is how uh, much I can dedicate to Chula Pantaka and his example before, you know, without getting too detailed about the cloth and this and that, because, um, because I find your question more um, uh, relevant to the, the externally observable part and whether that was anecdotal or whether it's something we find in the suttas. I don't find it in, well, I can't remember it right now in any of the suttas, whether I came across it. When I shared that just now to use somebody else's breathing, for example, as a source of you to anchor yourself in mindfulness, I use my own living experience. And um, because I looked at it as um, also a psychotherapist and also just seeing how we are affected and impacted by what we see. And this is what psychologists and behaviorists have been utilizing and uh, to our detriment for the past 30, 50 years, uh, looking how we respond to certain stimuli. And they've been hitting that nerve more and more and more and more. Um, and again, to our detriment, uh, and by us losing the sense of happiness and contentedness and tranquility. Those are out the door. So now we are definitely, uh, if we want any semblance of happiness, we need to really work against all that is working against us. So this would be one of the techniques. So uh, where, you know, let's say if you watch a boxing match or MMA fight, or, or somebody who's doing, like in Los Angeles, there's car chases, right? People around the world know about Los Angeles and now other cities are mimicking it. Notice what happens to your heart rate when you're watching a game, or not a game, but uh, a fight or something uh, that you see on social media, they say, wait for it, wait for it, and boom, there's this crash or a lightning hits or somebody falls and dies or something. This is the a negative aspect of observation. So what I was offering there in my earlier response was to look at it as a positive way of observation, observing the world around us. So I gave the example of a child, the infant who's breathing or the pet. Whether we like it or not, it will soothe us. 
It doesn't have to be a living, breathing being, but it could be something like uh, abiotic or a non-living thing necessarily. It could be like the waves on the ocean. Just observing the waves come in and out, or the sound of the rain. That's also observation. But let's say you don't have those luxuries and you're in the middle of a conference and, and, and you're seeing, you're sitting in a room, let's say, with your colleagues or a class or whatever, and you're seeing the agitation happen because somebody said or remarked uh, uh, in a bad way. Notice something that is a little bit more neutral than your agitated state. Look at something else. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I say check even, I mean, you can check your body, of course. Check how you're positioned on the seat underneath you. Is it equally distributed? But most often people, when they are watching their breath, they're lost in concepts because distractions are there. The eyes, they open and they look. So if you have another meditator sitting across from you, let's say, check their pulse, check their jugular. Usually you're going to be able to spot something or they're breathing in and out. Just observe that. Hey, you're being curious about an external object. You, you don't want to stay with yourself. Most of us start from there. We have to go through that. Observe someone else. But guess what? You are sneakily paying attention to your mind and you're practicing satipatthana. So this would be an ingenious way, I think, of bringing your mindfulness, your attention back. So ultimately, I don't care if it's your breath or something. The Lord Buddha, as you see, is not fixated on the breath or the body postures. He doesn't care. As long as the mind comes to that point of receptivity, of tranquility, where it's open, where the Dhamma can appear. So I hope that answers your question. Good. All right. Uh, the body's getting weaker. <laughs> So I will, uh, uh, let's, let's share some merits here. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May you be well. May the blessings of the Triple Gem be with you and your loved ones. And hopefully I'll see you next week uh, where we get together and continue on uh, with the next segment of the Mahasatipatthana. So uh, until next time, be well. Put the practice, uh, put it into practice. That's what I'm trying to say. And... Uh, Meditation doesn't have to happen on the cushion. Everywhere you find yourself. Everywhere. So long as you're alive. That's when it becomes real fun. You take it with you everywhere you go. Even if you leave your phone behind. <laughs> Be well. Mm.